One thing I love about the job of a cycling coach is the problem-solving skills needed to maximize the performance of the athletes I coach. And this is a moving target. New things come up all the time. Take, for example, a recent chat with an athlete about his ride last Saturday. We were testing a caffeine supplement protocol and his performance seemingly benefited from the extra caffeine, spending 18 minutes at 496 watts. I asked him about recovery and sleep for the rest of the day, to which he replies, fine, got to sleep, all good, and yesterday was fine as well. Had a nap and still had eight hours overnight. So that's squared away for another day when it really counts, like Zwift Worlds. And when I mention this, he casually says, 3am in the morning, I'll pump in the espresso. I had a little chuckle and moved on. It wasn't until later on in the day that I thought, holy shit, 3am in the morning, that is no good for performance. We've got some work to do. So here we are, two weeks out from Zwift Worlds, and how the hell are we going to get ready to perform at 3am in the morning? Yo-ho, and welcome back to Ride Better, Faster, a show about cycling training and racing. I'm Damien Roos. In this episode, not only are we going to try and work out how to perform in the middle of the night, but we're going to ask the question, how does time of day impact performance and how can you optimize your training and racing according to your circadian phenotype? It's rare to see cycling past midnight in a big competition. I actually can't think of any instances where I have seen it. Well, other than ultra-style events, I'd say this is even unique to the new normal that indoor racing and 2020 has helped us create. And without even getting into late-night competition performance, we both know that performance varies, even on a day-to-day basis. This variation is not trivial, and you don't need science to detect it. We've all been there putting out our best power one day and pedaling squares the next. But is there an optimal time of day to train or perform? And what's the impact of competing late at night? When I began hunting around for answers on the internet, it's no surprise that I came across an article written to prepare for late night competition at the Rio Olympic Games. The Olympics are big business and night games help them get more eyeballs on the sport at the cost of the athlete's performance, mind you. So no doubt, all the coaches and sports scientists were working hard to combat the impact of these late night games. This article was put together to help them, and now it can help us. It mentions that the potential harmful effects of late night competitions comes down to sleep and circadian rhythms on athletic performance. The bigger picture here is how sleep impacts performance. So my first question then is how much do we know about sleep and performance? Well, when you punch in sleep and performance into PubMed, you get around 1,000 published papers with 680 of those in the last 10 years. But sleep is not so important for a single event like this. It does have to factor into the build-up to race day, but to me, it's not as closely linked to the performance in the race. The article written for the Rio Olympics Games makes the recommendation that athletes develop an activity schedule for physical, technical, tactical, and physiological preparation that accounts for circadian rhythms. The circadian system is more important because it regulates and controls various physiological functions that has been shown to undergo changes relative to the time of day. The key muscle physiological processes of sports performance, example flexibility, muscle strength, explosiveness, vary with time of day in a rhythmic manner. So returning to PubMed, 
I punch in circadian and sports performance, and I get 400 papers with 184 published in the last 10 years. This is not a lot to go on, especially if you dig deeper and try and find studies on athletes that work in this specific situation. So we are going to have to get creative here. But before we do that, let's look at the circadian system in more detail. What most people know about circadian rhythms is very well established. They are approximately 24-hour patterns. Generally, we see them in the sleep-wake cycle, but they are rhythms in physiology like your heart rate rhythm or blood pressure rhythm, biochemistry, circulating levels of insulin, molecular biology, basically every single cell in your body has a circadian rhythm. It's also important to note that they change independent of environment. They have their own internal clock. To put this in athletic terms, let me give you an idea of the relationship between the key physiological processes of sports performance and circadian rhythms over a 24-hour period. The production of melatonin begins approximately two hours before habitual bedtime. The daily minimum of core body temperature rhythm, which coincides with the daily low point in the circadian cycle, occurs approximately seven hours after melatonin onset. After waking up, you have the sharpest increase of blood pressure, melatonin secretion stops, and after a little while, your testosterone secretion is at its highest level, which is closely followed by high alertness. In wake feeding, your fatty acid uptake and glycolytic metabolism increase. In your liver, your glycogen synthesis increases. After this, your peak coordination and reaction time occur, and somewhere between the daily peak of your core body temperature rhythm, which coincides with the daily high point of the circadian cycle, you have your peak cardiovascular and muscle strength. Therefore, a person who normally sleeps from 11 at night to 7 in the morning will have melatonin onset at around 9 o'clock in the evening. Their core temperature minimum will be at around 4 in the morning, and their core temperature maximum will be around 4 in the afternoon. Maximal sleepiness and poorest mental and physical performance occur in the two or three hour window either side of the core temperature minimum and maximal alertness and greatest mental and physical performance occur two or three hours either side of your maximum core temperature. So you can start to see the picture here that circadian rhythms, among other factors, have also been shown not only to regulate key physiological processes involved in athletic performance, but also disruption in circadian rhythms can have a negative impact in both physical and cognitive performance. So we start to see why a race at 3 a.m. is a big problem. And the solution is to shift the phase of the circadian rhythm. To help do this, it's helpful to know that driving all of these changes is something called a molecular clock. And the really dope thing, which I mentioned just a second ago, is that the molecular clock exists in virtually every single cell in your body. It forms with other processes and falls under an endogenous clock, and there are three clocks in total. The other two are the solar clock and the social clock. Now, I know we're getting into the weeds a little bit here. Here's the part that's important to us. The environmental cues do not turn the clocks on. They just run. But they are adaptable and can entrain. In other words, the clocks can reset or synchronize with the external environmental cues. And this is where we start to think about interventions. Because there are many interventions that have been studied to shift clocks forward or back. And light is one of these inventions for the central or the solar clock. And we'll come back to this. But in the world of sports science, 
Other interventions like time of exercise or time of feeding adds time-setting information to cells in muscle and other peripheral tissues. We will get into interventions in just a moment, but I just realized we've got this far without even mentioning another complication in the circadian system. Not all humans are the same. Research done in the last five years has observed different chronotypes. You may have heard of these in popular media. There's the owl, the intermediate, and the lark, the night person, the morning person, and the person that's somewhere in between, which is actually where most of us sit. And here, there is still more work to be done to understand these chronotypes. Right now, they are known to be genetically determined to a certain extent. The environment influences them. They change with age. But in all the research so far, there is not enough information about what influences a person's chronotype. When I put some of this information together, my worst fears came true. To find out what chronotype you are, there are some scientifically verified chronometric tests. But without this, this athlete seems to identify as a lark. With a habitual bedtime of 10pm and a wake-up time of 7am, That puts him square in the maximal sleepiness and poorest mental and physical performance range in the two or three hours either side of his core body temp, which is estimated right at 3 a.m. So I wanted to dig deeper to find out, will this really have an impact on his performance? And in well-established literature, afternoon has always been thought of as the peak performance time for all athletes. But in a study done in 2015 at the University of Birmingham, They found that athletes competing at the wrong time of day could be missing their best by up to 26% by comparing the sports performances of owl athletes and the more lark-like early risers. It concluded that peak performance times differ significantly between circadian rhythm phenotypes when analyzed as a function of time of day. In the case of a lark, the maximum performance happens around midday or early afternoon, intermediates it's the afternoon, and owls it's the evening. While these are absolutely fascinating findings, and it's consistent with what we intuitively believe to be true, this finding took a bit of flack at the time, mostly around the tests done, which were an aerobic beep test. But they have gone on since then and conducted other types of performance tests across different athletic populations, and they found similar things. While More work definitely needs to be done here. It's certainly confirming my fears yet again, especially considering the lead author on this paper, Brandstetter, mentions in a 2019 talk at the European College of Sports Science conference that this impacts performance only for the last 10 to 20% of max. Athletes can bring 60, 70, 80% performances no problem at all times, independent of circadian phenotype. But if you want to get that last 10 or 20% out, then it's important to align them as best as possible. I mentioned earlier that the chronotypes are mostly unknown, but we do know that they are genetic. So at this stage, changing types is more about shifting phases. And let me explain that better. Every circadian clock has a certain entrainment range, and this is it adjusts to environmental factors. As an example, owls have a slow running clock that becomes misaligned to early environmental schedules due to lack of entrainment. Other factors that affect things like your day-night rhythm in the short term are multitasking factors like work or training, or sustained factors like your solar day or your social environment. 
And finally, disrupting factors like malnutrition, misalignment of sleep and lack of sleep, travel, etc. can change your circadian clock. Now, you may be an owl that's misaligned and your performance on the bike suffers because of this, or you may be a lark that needs to perform at night. What interventions can you implement to move you or shift your phase? The author of the Olympic paper said that some teams implemented training camps that simulate the routine and schedule of the Olympic Games. Say this can acclimatize athletes, allowing them to readjust their biological clocks. A good idea, but not really practical for everyone. So I did a bit more digging here, and this is where it gets a little wonky, but in simple terms, it's identification and correction of lifestyle to bring you back into alignment with environmental time. If you wanted to do it more formally, you'd hire a circadian coach. Then you could do some chrono testing and typing, including body clock typing, and then determining what your specific circadian disruptions are. But we're just going to go with our gut on this one. Figure this out. And if you're doing it for yourself, I think that makes a lot more sense. It's more about using your intuition to recognize what chronotype you are and being honest about the source of your disruptions. Because I know from experience that it's easy to get caught up in a cycle of wrongdoings that may give my biological clock the wrong signals. Things like caffeine intake at the wrong times or food intake at the wrong times that lead to late sleep onset times. From there, you're looking to stabilize your daily wake rhythm with interventions. And I'm going for individual, non-evasive, non-pharmacological and flexible intervention strategies here and interventions for this athlete. We have some guidance on the type of interventions that work. Facer Childs et al. published a study in Sleep Medicine in 2019, and they were able to achieve a phase advance of around two hours, meaning participants were able to bring forward their sleep-wake timings by two hours with having no negative effect on sleep duration. This sounds like we're getting close to some useful information, but I wanted to investigate further, so I turned to some papers on a common disruption to athletes, jet lag. I came across an editorial called Practical Tips to Manage Travel Fatigue and Jet Lag in Athletes early on in my search. And it was first published online on the 18th of November, 2020 for the British Journal of Sports Medicine. And while it did have great practical advice, duh, the one section that got my attention was the part about adjusting the body clock based on the minimum core body temperature. It also uses the timing before and after the onset of the minimum core body temperature to measure the circadian clock and made me aware of the link between core body temperature and the circadian clock. And this is a useful connection to make because after harping on about the new core body temp unit that I mentioned a couple of shows back, they were kind enough to send me and this athlete one unit each. And we're going to use it for heat training, but we can also use it to measure core body temp in their 24-7 mode. Looking at the paper that was referenced, it's from Frontiers in Physiology from 2019. It's called Interventions to Minimize Jet Lag After Westward and Eastward Flight. It explained the timing of the human sleep-wake and circadian systems that are related to it. And part of this is the connection between the daily rhythm of core body temperature and the circadian systems. The core unit gives us a way to directly assess the timing of the minimum core body temp. And with the help of this paper, it also identifies the timing of key physiological processes around that 24-hour clock. And this is a perfect way to quantify phase shifts from our interventions. 
But if you're going to do this yourself, you really don't need the unit necessarily. You can do an estimate from the numbers that I'm about to quote. So let's use me as an example. Now, this paper says the production of endogenous melatonin starts approximately two hours before habitual bedtime. And that puts it between 8.30 p.m. and 10 p.m. because my sleep window is from 10.30 to 12 a.m. And I measured my core temp last night. I hit the core temp minimum of 36.472 degrees Celsius at approximately 1.42 a.m. The paper says that the daily minimum of core body temperature rhythm, which coincides with the daily low point in the circadian cycle, occurs approximately seven hours after melatonin onset. That would put it at 3.30 a.m., nearly two hours after I experienced it. I might be out of sync. And while I'm not an expert on these things, it seems like it was still down at that point at around 36.592 degrees Celsius at that 3.30. So let's just work off there. The daily peak of the core body temperature rhythm, which coincides with the high point of the circadian cycle, occurs 12 hours after the core body temp minimum. Therefore, my core body temp max is at 3.30 p.m. And with this athlete, melatonin onset starts at around 8 p.m. And their core minimum temperature would be at 3 a.m. and the core max at 3 p.m. So our aim is to delay or advance the timing of this athlete's circadian system by 12 hours. Now, that's a big move. But to me, as someone who lives in Europe and travels to Australia every year, in fact, anyone that's done the trip knows it's possible to make the shift after adjusting to jet lag in each direction. And this actually coincides exactly with this paper. They have recommended adjustment schedules for 12-hour flights, both eastbound and westbound. Now, this study has three interventions, light, melatonin, and exercise. And I want to use non-invasive protocols, so I will focus on their recommendations for light, which is also the time they recommend the athlete trains. They have some handy graphs on the intervention, basically laying out travel and sleep times and when to expose yourself to dark or light environments. And this is where it gets a little tricky. Getting your minimum core body temp back to a middle of the night timing here is the goal. And a partial adaption is achieved when core body temp minimum in the new time zone occurs within the scheduled sleep period. A complete adaption is achieved when the core body temp minimum in the new time zone occurs at the same time as free travel. And honestly, that is no good to us. I'm really not sure I want to put this athlete through six to 10 days of these protocols adapting to the upside down schedule when it could impact all other aspects of their life. I am more looking into shifting phases so he better resembles an owl rather than a lark. So to adapt to the circadian system, you could either delay or advance. However, given the human circadian system has a natural period of approximately 24.2 hours, such that it has a greater propensity to delay than to advance. It's more common to adapt by delay. So a phase delay of a couple of hours in a few days would be a win here. And this is where I spent a bit of time closely looking at the interventions from this jet lag study, concluding that the best example from this study would be a simulated time zone shift when traveling from east to west. So we're trying to shift the core body temp minimum to later in the night. Now, I've already ruled it out, but I was trying to get an idea of exactly why they were using different parts of these interventions. And the exact strategy, as I mentioned, uses a mix of light therapy and melatonin supplementation. But the use of light exposure avoidance is used in four-hour blocks. 
And this is a red flag for me. If it's sun exposure in the middle of the day, I'd be happy to stick someone outside for four hours. But with artificial light, it's a different story altogether. You see, when it comes to artificial light therapy or bright light therapy, as is more commonly known, the idea is to administer light using light boxes that emit broad spectrum white light with intensities ranging from 2,500 to 10,000 lux. And by the way, indirect daylight is about 10,000 lux. To get the best impact, you need to maintain your eyes in a fixed position in front of the screen and control gaze as much as possible. So after canning any interventions from that study in time frames, I kept digging and luckily I found what I was looking for, a study with the Olympic swimmers preparing for late night competitions in Rio. The best news was it lines up with exactly what I was after, the use of bright light therapy and some training sessions to delay the sleep-wake cycle. And instead of four hours of light exposure, it was between 30 and 40 minutes. The authors used the same logic I had been applying. That is the use of light to modulate circadian rhythms in order to minimize the effects of jet lag. And the results from the study were differences in mean bedtime that were statistically significant. They did note that adopting a strategy of holding training sessions at the same time as the scheduled competitions, in this case 10 p.m. to midnight, might not have been sufficient to overcome any negative effect on performance. And when they were setting their acclimatization protocol, they modeled it based on the phase response curves to light, concluding that exposure to light prior to core body temperature minimum or during typical bedtime will delay circadian rhythms. The acclimatization period was eight days. Starting on the third day, the athletes underwent bright light therapy between the hours of 6 and 8 p.m. for a period ranging between 30 and 40 minutes while traveling from the hotel to the training center. This is actually only a five-day protocol once you remove testing. The athletes shifted their bedtimes by 45 minutes to an hour later over this five days with that 30 to 40 minutes of light exposure. The one thing here is they used portable light glasses. And because that bright light device was portable, the athletes were able to perform other tasks while using it, such as reading or listening to music. After the bright light therapy, the athletes initiated their swimming training. And we're not going to go out and buy a pair of $300 light glasses. So the best we can do is find a light that is at least 10,000 lux in the house. For example, I went hunting in my house and I found a nice diffused light source with a lux measurement of 10,213. I measured it at the recommended 40 to 60 centimeters away from the light, just with a free lux app on my phone. You can sit in front of the light with your eyes shut, or you can sit looking away and reading a book, for example. At the end of their training, the athletes were asked to use sunglasses to, de to decrease their light exposure. Additionally, it was recommended that the athletes not use electronic devices before sleeping, and during their acclimatization period, a daily routine of going to bed and waking up later than usual was established for the athletes. Furthermore, hotel phones were turned off and blackout curtains were used to block outside light. And these strategies were adapted with the aim of avoiding sleep fragmentation or interruption. So that all sounds good. The only thing I might add here is that I may keep pushing the timing of this forward, similar to the way that the jet lag study did. And that would be how I would wrap it up. It seems like we might have something that would work. If you're wanting to resync yourself, for example, by bringing forward your sleep-wake timings by two hours, try these steps. Wake up two or three hours before regular wake-up and maximize outdoor light during the mornings. If it's not light outside, then go ahead and use the same lighting setup that I recommended. Go to bed two or three hours before habitual bedtime and limit light exposure in the evening. 
keep your sleep-wake times fixed on both work days and free days, have breakfast as soon as possible after waking up, eat lunch at the same time each day, and refrain from eating dinner after 7pm. Just to wrap this up here, i got to admit this is a tricky one. It took me a few days to get my head around it, and it's not something that I really have the answer for after all of this investigation. I know I've come up with something, but it's like, okay, here's the problem. Let's go see what the science says. Let's figure out if that would work in the athlete's life and then kind of take it from there. So I'll have a chat with the athlete. We can weigh the pros and cons of making any large changes to his schedule and then we'll take it from there. As for you, have you learned anything today? There certainly is merit in considering your phenotype for training days. That's if your schedule allows. Then it's a matter of considering how big the changes you want to try and implement are, whether it's like a simple reminder just to put your phone down and listen to your body around bedtime or to make a more drastic shift where you start to need to do more things in order to bring you back to your circadian phenotype. So try it on and see how you go. Ride Better Faster is written, hosted, and scored by me, Damien Roos. You can check out more episodes at semiprocycling.com. Until next time, ride well. <laughs>